You are listening to Living in the End Times with Amos and X, a podcast about politics and prose, theology theory, hijinks and pranks, and the everything and nothing to come. Become so very reckless on the floor in front of you and motionless. Every time you pass my room, will I question this? And what the hell I'm gonna do with this goddamn mess that we've got ourselves into? And I can't live like this with you sleeping in. Touch more now than the past six months outside, and we fuck more now than we never did before. But as the sun comes up, will I sneak back out your door? And I'm still bitter. For the way you've treated me, well, like it didn't matter. You couldn't wait for me to leave, but I'm still here. I'm not waiting for a thing. It's just nice to see you around. We're both finally getting thin, and there's one thing now that's different from before. I'm not angry now. Yeah, I'm not. How you doing tonight, Amos? Good. How are you doing, Brian? I'm all right. Um, we were talking. What's the worst uh, Coen oh. Brothers film? In his- oh, sorry. I'm getting ahead of you. No, you're not. You're gonna- Okay. So <laughs> you weren't impressed with the new Coen Brothers film. That's the uh, the Buster or something one, right? Ballad Buster Scruggs. There you go. And, uh, and I just asked you, well, what, what have they done worse than that? Yeah. Well, I wasn't, like I said, it wasn't in the top third sure. Coen Brothers movies, which is still still a good, I mean, a bad Coen Brothers movie is a good movie. Right. I think if I, my my reflex worst Coen Brothers movie is The Lady Killers. Okay, I never saw that one. Yeah, to be honest. so don't I mean, bother. Uh, I don't know. You had said Intolerable Cruelty. I think Intolerable Cruelty has a li- even at a sentimental level has a little more going on than uh, okay. The Lady Killers remake. Uh, a lot of people really like Burn After Reading. I think it's funny, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's that great. I just think there was that whole period from like 2004, Intolerable Cruelty, to mm-hmm. like 2009, uh, with the exception of <clears throat> obviously the, the probably maybe their best like film in terms of scale and scope would be No Country for Old Men. Right. Uh, 
but other than that standout, it was a little bit a little bit of a lull for some reason. Sure. Um, okay, so I don't disagree. So okay, uh, if I'm sorry to interrupt, are you suggesting then that uh, going in the opposite direction? No Country is probably the the best film that they've the best piece of art that they've produced. Because that's what I'm tempted to say, and I'm just not sure if you're on the same page. I'm just, I'm thinking through it. Like, is it better than Miller's Crossing? Is it better than Lebowski? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's better than Lebowski. Say, dude, where is your car? Who's got your undies, Walter? Not that I have any pro. Okay, maybe it's a. T- we should pick a comedy and a not comedy. Sure, that's fair. And the comedy we should pick is Raising Arizona. <laughs> and the not comedy we should pick is No Country. I guess that would be my... Sure. Yeah, that would be my deathbed call uh, at this point. Sure. Because I, I, I don't know. Does anything else stand out to you? I mean, a lot of... Like, Mark Maron has argued that Hail Caesar's their best movie, even though nobody, it's overlooked. I think mm-hmm. it's a, amazing. I don't know if it's their best movie. It's, yeah. From a leftist perspective, it's really funny. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. Okay, so it's about George Clooney's playing this like Hollywood uh, contract actor back when the studios controlled everything, uh, to the point where like you know they're telling people what they can say and all that kind of thing, uh, and Clooney's playing Caesar or some you know <clears throat> some Roman higher up in this movie, and Josh Brolin's the basically the head of the, the skull cracker for the studio and Clooney gets wrapped up with like Herbert Marcuse and all these Hollywood uh, Marxists sure. and they just, they rope him into kind of indoctrinating him into this leftist ideology. And he starts like just naively repeating it back to <laughs> Josh Brolin, who then sure. like threatens to kill him uh, if he ever <laughs> says any of that shit ever again. Uh <clears throat> So that one, uh, that's a recent example of a good one. My problem with Buster Scruggs is it's just too... I don't like... If you're going to make a vignette movie, just make a TV show, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially this day and age. It just honestly seemed a little outdated, even though Mm -hmm. I liked some of the stories. Uh, The James Franco one is probably the best one, Um, and I love Zoe Kazan and anything, but yeah, it just didn't... It didn't pass the smell test overall. All right. Well, I won't bother then. <laughs> or maybe I will just to, yeah, just, well. just for the heck of just it. to prove me wrong. Yeah. There you go. All right. So um, we were going to talk about a few things perhaps uh, this week, including again yellow vests and where that's in France. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's um, Green New Deal proposal and, and any any other things that sort of emerge. Right. So. Uh, yeah. Do you want to start off describing the Green New Deal and? In brief, uh, that's being proposed by what you said, thirty-five House members. Yeah. So very generally, um, AOC has um, sort of come come forward with this Green New Deal proposal, um, and has the uh, allegedly the backing of thirty-five members of the House, uh, Bernie Sanders, and some other folks in the Senate. And again, it's it's mostly a skeletal, aspirational uh, document so far. There's not a lot of detail, but the goal ultimately is completely renewable energy in the United States within 10 years, within a decade. So that's carbon neutral, not carbon 
negative. I don't know that nuclear is a part of this at all, but um, the idea would be it's like, you know, FDR's New Deal insofar as it's a works progress administration sort of thing where we put people to work in new uh, green, I guess, energy industries at the same time as we phase workers out of fossil fuel industries and there'll be programs or sort of plans to help uh, not to displace those workers in the fossil fuel industries to include indigenous peoples um, in the discussion and sort of people of color and sort of use it as a way of sort of refashioning the American economy, broadly speaking, right, um, around green energy sorts of projects and the, the grid itself, the electrical grid and all that. Um, and again, it's, it's super aspirational. I think it's a good step in the right direction, whether it'll pan out. I don't know whether it'll be co-opted. I don't know whether it has, you know, the... I guess the <clears throat> the ability to really save us, we don't know yet because, again, it's just kind of a proposal that's um, not, a, not a lot of, it's not very well detailed yet. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and I don't, I mean, it's not, if it doesn't include, if nuclear isn't the keystone uh, new energy source, then it's, it's a, uh, it's a failure out the gate. Like you, it just won't, we can't, we've talked about this before on the show. You can't scale solar and wind and have it meet energy, current energy demands, let alone future energy demands, because it doesn't provide baseload power, which is why solar and wind have been allowed to be sold to the public, given the massive control uh, by fossil fuel companies of, you know, public discourse and sure. that kind of thing. Uh, <coughs> so uh, I think I think we need to think take pretty seriously what it what the cost is going to be and what the what the goal is. Uh, it strikes me that maybe one of the ways they're hedging. So the nuclear problem aside, one of the ways that they seem to be hedging is why not just tie this to Medicare for all. Um, if they tied a green jobs program to Medicare for all, then you could have a unified platform in the form of one, a single bill that would allow every, allow a lot more pressure to be placed on Congress in the run up to the fight for, a, you know, push it through committee and get a vote and that sort of thing. But by bracketing it, I mean, tying it to a jobs program is good, but like what sort of jobs program transitioning? I think it's, it's like a strange it's a strange move to talk about like, we need to save these oil jobs. Well, the oil jobs didn't exist until the, you know, the Bakken oil play became, you know, viable because of manipulated financial situation. Like, so fracking is always losing money, but they can get away with it in the short term by borrowing money at almost 0% interest and sort of running these, Assuming, you know, and then if if oil's over a certain price per barrel, if it's over $100 or whatever, then it's supposedly profitable. But it's not, in the long term, functionally profitable because it's never profitable to be fracking oil. <clears throat> um, again, it's based on this financial manipulation, which is ultimately a de facto government subsidy on oil, oil companies' right. profitability. So... On the one hand, we're already, which is to say that the oil industry is already a socialized industry. It's just that the profits are privatized mm -hmm. or the short-term profits are privatized. So, <clears throat> I'm and I'm not sure they're making that argument, but my point, uh, what I'm driving at is that, like, here in North Dakota, you'd have this, whenever the oil boom kicks back up, 
and this has happened once or twice since it really started in 2007 or so, um, you have an influx of people from out of state because they want, you know, $100,000 a year jobs mm -hmm. or what, a $70,000 a year jobs and good on them. I mean, who can blame anyone who's trying to support their family and stuff for, for doing just that? Um, but then when it migrates to now they have a big, there's an even bigger oil play in uh, Midlands, Texas that they found that's bigger than like, this is the biggest one in world history or maybe I'm wrong about that, but a very large oil play that's overtaken North Dakota as the, um, you know, oil production capital, of the U S and the pay is even higher down there. Mm -hmm. And so people are migrating for these jobs anyway, at least temporarily, so I don't think like any the only people making an argument on the basis of oil jobs are oil company propagandists because the people working in the oil fields are just going where the money is anyway and it's I mean it, to some degree it's a specialized skill set but in general like beyond being able to drive a, having a license to drive a, a semi a big rig all of that's almost all that stuff is on the job training anyway so the the reef there's just a reflexive transition if you start creating good paying jobs in whatever constitutes green jobs um people will naturally just take the jobs because they want to work and such a huge percentage of the mm -hmm. u.s workforce is out of work the unemployment number is doctored and it's a lie um it's radically low i think the real number is something like 37 percent of u.s working age people aren't aren't in the workforce so um it i don't like the reactionary tone of like well we need to save these oil jobs not i mean when you're talking about like a something like a coal mine or a power plant where you have generational uh industries then it makes sense, but that's not even how they find oil anymore. It's very much transient in its nature. So th at the very least, they should be making the argument that I'm making, which is that <clears throat> it's, it's better on its own terms. It's not simply saving oil jobs for their own sake. And then they should be going a step further. And perhaps they are um, to expand it to a, a whole radical jobs program for the country. If that's really the goal. Or just call it a basic income and then open the door for more employment opportunities to make more money. Um, like, I don't understand the needs. I understand the verbiage of the New Deal because people understand what that is. Um, and they know the benefit uh, to the country, but <clears throat> historically, but I think that there's, there's a way to m go far beyond what they're aiming at and be more specific and that uh, that again will and they should be tying it to a higher minimum wage so what's the point of a jobs program if the minimum wage is still 725 an hour federally and that's meaning or whatever it is is it nine now i, I don't no, know if they bumped not. it at it's, all okay so 725 <clears throat> so it's the same level it was in the late 90s i think mm -hmm. is the last time they changed it and obviously our economy's gone through major two major um, crashes, at least three, if you count, well, more, if you count the flash crashes, um, huge economic shifts, huge global power shifts in some sense <clears throat> since then. Uh, 
yet we're still living like Bill Clinton's president. I guess maybe it's telling that ideologically, like Hillary Clinton still showing her face just demonstrates that that sort of Clinton 90s ideology is still operative. What Zizek calls is, you know, that's the true utopianism, assuming the system can continue on its course forever when obviously it can't for structural reasons. Um, <clears throat> I think the more the more important work or whatever moves that AOC has been making lately are to show that like she, she continues to blow the whistle on the internal workings of Congress as she's being, um, you know, briefed in or whatever they call it, like her orientation. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a Jimmy Dore video where she was talking about how what, when they were having orientation, like these investment bank higher ups showed up at the orientation and basically berating them like this is how it works this is mm -hmm. what you have to do so you have private private corporations coming in and instructing elected lawmakers at the highest at the most powerful like um <clears throat> the the most democratic and the most powerful uh, branch of the federal government being instructed by investment Capital. bankers yeah corporate interests on what how to behave and thankfully there was a at least internally there was some pushback where they were basically like shut the fuck up you know we're you don't know what you don't know what where you just walked into um this is a revolutionary you know congress that just got elected i mean that's that's a, overstating it but i mean right. I, i'm glad that <clears throat> there was some pushback but that that's the real that's where things really happen i think is at the level of like what are what are we allowed to say and not say what is allowed to be spoken about or not and that's why aoc has become like the target of fox news just as a symptom mm -hmm. like they're obsessed with her because she's doing all the shit that you're not supposed to do from the perspective of power you know, the the function of power in the us and so is if that continues and we can get more radical policies. And by radical, I just mean that what I've just modestly been describing, I think, um, just a little bit more refined and specific version of a Green New Deal tied to Medicare for all, tied to a wage increase. That's something that you could get people in the streets over, you know, for forever, perhaps, until we get it. Because And tied to free college. It should just be holistic at that level, since we bail out, <clears throat> we bailed out the capitalist how many times, to the tune of trillions of dollars. Whatever we're proposing as a Green New Deal slash jobs program slash <clears throat> fifteen dollars an hour slash free college slash Medicare for all would would save the government money or would save the taxpayers money in the short and the long term and increase in make the economy actually healthy beyond just the financial speculation. So <clears throat> hopefully those things start to dovetail, but mm -hmm. I really don't understand why the progressive edge in the leadership like Sanders and AOC aren't just pushing even harder against the, the grain of like, you know, just corporate dismantling of the entire social fabric. Right. And I should clarify again, we don't know details yet, but my understanding of, the oil industry jobs was not that they'll be quote unquote saved, but that those workers will be transitioned into green jobs. Right. So okay. yeah, yeah, that's why. I'm sorry, so. I was. That's what I was responding to. I is see. Like that should just 
be obvious. Sure. I mean, it's fine that they're saying it, but like, mm-hmm. we don't need to be speaking to oil companies' fucking talking points right. in proposing a vision for the future. Sure. Right. So on that on that note too, I, I mean, I don't want to switch topics too quickly here, but it, um, in terms of saving money in the short and long term, it came to my attention just this week. And so the caveat or the sort of aside is y'all know that I've been trying to do some Medicare for all organizing in the state of North Dakota, and that's it's coming along slowly. But um, it came to my attention that one of the interim committees in the state uh, at the North Dakota legislative level, they have um, a draft of a of a bill that's probably going to be taken up at some point in 2019 here, which essentially seems to be trying to institute what's called a self-insurance program for state employees, meaning state employees are currently, we have, um, we have insurance through a private provider that the state sort of allows to manage the state employees' health insurance. That might go away, and the state of North Dakota will just provide insurance health for the state employees. Mm. Um, and we'll see, again, what that looks like, and maybe it's more um, problematic than it sounds on its face. But I found that, and this is, again, a Republican uh, legislature that's going to be proposing this and working on it, um, it's kind of interesting that there might be some direction there at the state level because, um, and again, I'm sorry, I, I'm providing you the context later. At the end, the um, the Republican legislature at the state of North Dakota wanted to save some money because they're, recogn- they're realizing how much money they're losing by having a private health insurance provider do all this um, health insurance for their employees. So at a state level, the state employees are costing the state a whole bunch of money. Mm-hmm. And the state is figuring out, we could do this in a much cheaper way. Let's study the ways to do that, and maybe this is one way to do that. So, I mean, which is, again, having a sort of internal state system for health insurance costs for state employees. And so that's going to be, I think, at least discussed on some level, and I'm super fascinated by what that might look like. Right. So. <clears throat> um and we should probably remind people that North Dakota's population is around a million people. So this is the equivalent of like a uh, city of Minneapolis in yeah. St. Paul, like having a state run health system, which wouldn't be, I mean, they could probably get that accomplished in a couple of right. years with a little bit of shoe leather. Um, but it would constitute, you know, all, entire like state system government, which then could definitely right. obviously be expanded to the whole population. That's right. And which is all, and so state employees include all the everyone at the universities, everyone obviously at, in state government, but other other folks too. Right. <clears throat> so I think like it, tens of thousands of people. It makes sense to use that as ammunition in organizing people and demonstrating like how how quickly and simply probably these things could start to move. Right. If, if pressure is applied in a in an effective manner, which we've discussed before, there are a lot of ways to do that, and all avenues should be explored along those lines. Uh, even, I mean, I think one thing to do locally would be to try and get um, organize some people to have put constant pressure on the major city councils to get them to pass resolutions supporting a uh, single payer mm-hmm. Medicare for all or state of North Dakota version of Medicare for all system uh, as a means to at least raise awareness about the support locally for these measures or expose the city council members or mayors who aren't behind such a radically popular policy right. that 70% of the U S population supports. Um, 
yeah, I think and things can move very quickly along these lines. Uh, for instance, like shifting slightly, um, in the UK, just today, uh, as of this recording, Theresa May almost was booted out of uh, Parliament. Um, no confidence she, vote, right? Yeah, she she managed to survive by promising to resign before the next general election mm-hmm. to not stand for PM. Um, and for those uh, not familiar with UK politics, Theresa May is the the Tory Prime Minister. Uh, the Tories are like the basically the Republicans of the UK. Jeremy Corbyn is uh, what considered a radical left uh, candidate. He's sort of the Bernie Sanders of the UK, even though his policies are more to the left, uh, which has a lot more to do with a stronger, openly left history that was never crushed in the UK, whereas it was in the US, meaning there are like open Trotskyites, uh, which and some of the most powerful unions in the UK were openly, you know, Marxist Leninist. Uh, Mm -hmm. If up through, you know, the 80s, even, um, and maybe beyond. So, but Corbyn would have, the way that the parliamentary system works as per my understanding is the, if there's a no, if had a no confidence vote on Theresa May taking place, like had her own, her own party had to vote a certain number of whatever, however many votes they have in parliament, members of parliament. If they would have voted no confidence in her government, then it would have gone to, Corbyn, as the opposition leader, would have had the opportunity to bring a no confidence vote to the to Parliament, uh, no confidence in the government, which would have triggered a snap election, which mm-hmm. would have meant that within a month they elected totally new government. So imagine if we had a parliamentary system where, if enough Congress members <clears throat> of if enough Republicans opposed Trump, they could vote no confidence in his presidency, and then we could have new elections within a month. Uh, this is obviously a much more democratic system, allows for multiple parties to have mm-hmm. a voice in government without simply playing the game of either Democrat or Republican. Um, and Corbyn waited on the no confidence vote in the government because as a, a friend closer to UK politics, you know, follows it closer than I do, was pointing out that He's likely waiting for the Brexit deal to fail, which mm-hmm. will then lock in the her her inability to do what she promised. Okay, so <clears throat> now if Corbyn gets elected, excuse me, when Corbyn becomes prime minister, this will become a keystone left wing government in the in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, now we've been talking about the Yellow Jackets. Uh, or the yellow vests on this show. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at the insects, but <laughs> yeah, I the, hate the yellow jackets. You hate them, but they pollinate <laughs> and they right. scavenge. They do. They take care of all the they debris. Do the Lord's work from my car, even though they stink. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the so we've been talking about the yellow vests, and that's just across the channel, English mm-hmm. Channel. There, so you know that's the equivalent of like if. You know, like Texas, France is the size of Texas. Um, maybe France is comparable to Texas in some ways. They love beef. <laughs> Le bouf. It would be like if, you know, Louisiana went communist and right. uh, 
and then the, the Texas one was on the verge of another revolution or mm-hmm. something. Uh, it, with the yellow vests sort of at the gates, and their protests have spread to Belgium uh, and Sweden to a degree. Egypt, in the, the week since we were recording, our show on the yellow vests and Pamela Anderson, um, Egypt banned the sale of these yellow vests mm-hmm. for fear of an, uh, you know another Arab Spring-style yeah. uprising. And so the, things are moving very quickly um, in in Europe, but obviously... And then uh, in parallel, recently, the DM 25 which is this... Uh, Yanis Varoufakis, former Greek, Greek prime uh, financial finance minister um, of the far left party Syriza coalition party that took power in 2015 democratically, uh, but had a gun to their head by the economically from the European Central Bank and IMF, yeah, and yeah. the troika of financial interests forced them t- into this terrifying austerity package, which was the result of the european the the euro currency the financial union element of the european union made it such that poor countries had to compete economically with germany which is the economic powerhouse mm-hmm. in terms of a currency which wiped out spain's economy and greece is one of the weakest members just cuz it's a very small country um a tourist country and stuff and so this has just become a a weapon to destroy and dismantle these uh, weaker countries and the the fear was that once once greece fell it like say they left the eu or it just got clobbered um it, it could then move to other you know weaker countries like relatively in terms of currency and economy like portugal and then spain and then italy and then ultimately france um, but we've seen what we see now is that these this austerity has been imposed um, everywhere, and the reason the French are up are rising up is precisely because people can't eat. Um, you know, they're they're just poor. They have no future. They have nothing to. They have nothing to uh, hold on to, and so they're like fuck it let's <clears throat> let's see what we can you know the gov- macron is basically screwing everybody so his head should roll as it were and you know that who knows how literally they mean this i mean we had a sort of a i was i was trying to like sort out a little bit of like the the very verities of you know whether or not like what it, in terms of endorsing open political violence, which I wouldn't do, um, but trying to distinguish that from property crime and stuff like that. And so in France, like the, they're pushing back in, in every possible way, except, you know, armed struggle. And that's the most effective means available and it's working. Mm-hmm. Um, Macron's promised, uh, some reforms, but people continue to to escalate rather than even just stay at the same level of revolt. So what happened this week was the so the protests had been on the weekends, and we talked about how that's a f- sign of desperation that people can't even you know walk off the job because they're t- they need to feed their families. Well, mm-hmm. certain certain elements, certain stronger elements of 
the left uh, have pushed these protests into the week. So on Monday, a student Parisian students, I think, had a, staged a huge walkout and were marching. And then the one of the bigger unions in France uh, called for a 48-hour emergency strike starting, I think, today and then or no, starting Thursday, so Thursday and Friday. So this will continue to mount until, you know, Macron resigns and then they have to have a, another election or or who knows what will happen. But there are some there were some examples of the police laying down their shields and joining the protesters already. Um, but again, Fran France has a revolutionary history uh, that is fresh in the minds of people that we've discussed a little bit. I think we should be taking our cues from them at some level. Um, and so, oh, so anyways, getting the reason I was bringing up the EU is because Varoufakis, who's now standing for election in Germany, um, his group is working with Corbyn and Bernie Sanders and um, some of the Spanish like left leadership uh, <clears throat> to form this progressive international that they've just sort of formally christened. Uh, to fight all these huge structural problems, these economic problems, climate change problems, etc. There's another movement that just started two months ago. It's called Extinction Rebellion. I think I might have mentioned it uh, a few weeks ago. They, the idea there is we need to rise up and like the scale of the problem is global extinction. So we need a movement with up to that challenge and so their view is i mean what from my perspective is we need to we need to open up open this up to a much greater vision of what the scale of the problem is and how to fight it so it started with 10 members in london in uh, two months ago it's now spread to 35 countries and they're planning for uh, demos with, uh, I think, and this is collectively throughout the world, 2 million members in two months. So it's things can move. When we say things can move very quickly, we mean things can move very quickly. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I want to read uh, something David Graeber wrote about the uh, yellow vest just to give a little bit of context, but it yeah, I was going to say, if I could just uh, bring it all back home very quickly with an anecdote here. I think, um, so our, our pediatrician, my wife and I, our kids, uh, he's he's Greek, right? He's from Greece, and he came here uh, not too long ago, maybe a decade ago. But in any case, Mama uh, mia. that's right. Um, and I've asked him before about Alexis Tsipras and in uh, Syriza, and he doesn't really, I guess, want to talk too much about that, which is fine. Um, he's a busy guy in the, the clinical office. But in any case... His clinic office had been displaced. So for those who don't know, um, the, the local healthcare system, the main system in, in Grand Forks, the clinic, the old 1970s or 60s clinical building, literally experienced a, cra a crack in its sort of vertical, um, its, uh, its supports and its foundation, um, such that they had to abandon the building. Just almost overnight, they realized this, is, this could collapse at any moment. We can't have patients and employees in here. So they cleared out the building. Um, oh, just they, sorry, just interject. Sure. So that doesn't seem like these people are idiots building these buildings. It, there are very right. few buildings that are very tall in uh, Grand Forks. That's a fair point. Because we have <clears throat> this very unique soil that is, it's like 135 feet of 
glacial lake silt. Yeah. So to get right. to bedrock, they have to. It's very expensive. The pilings and, go way down. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's it gets the like, temperature extremes are such that like if the concrete's not mixed properly, I mean this building had been standing for decades, so. Right. Uh, the structural problem was maybe at some level inevitable. That's that's fair. So, and I don't mean to blame the um, architects or anything, but I was talking to this pediatrician though about this recently. Um, I saw him in a social setting, and he was like, um, I, "I asked him, you know, what, what have you been doing since this building collapsed? I mean, we've seen you in this other facility, and that must have disrupted the entire community's healthcare infrastructure, and it did." And he said, "Yeah, you know, this is." This is crazy and it's unacceptable. I mean, what is this? Greece? We're not in Greece, right? <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny, but um, it made me think, though, that to your point about bringing uh, the new Green Deal infrastructure, Medicare for All, college, all into one big sort of pot and just program, I don't disagree with that because in this country alone, literally, buildings are collapsing, right? Mm-hmm. We have bridges in Minneapolis, St. Paul that are just falling down. And so right. there is certainly... And our main bridge over the Red River here is literally what had to be rebuilt from... Like, they didn't tear it down, but it's, right. they had to take out all the concrete That's and right. redo everything. Right. And so, I mean, uh, just a series of examples, and I think Congress, to their credit, kind of gets this in Washington, that we need to fix the infrastructure in this country, and we need a jobs program, and we can put people back to work by doing that. Which and Trump promised. That's right. And it hasn't happened yet, but there's... So there's no reason we couldn't have... Some, I mean, that's going to major... If this Green New Deal is going to restructure the economy in a profound way, there's no reason we can't just jump or lump the infrastructure program there as well to help put people back to work. And it's all, I mean, to your point, it's all of a piece. I mean, this is all connected. We should call it a and bailout for the people. There you go. Uh, again, from healthcare to green, uh, to New Deal and energy to infrastructure, it's all connected. And In you can't college, separate yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. You can't sort of isolate these things from each other. Um, and again, I have a, I have a I guess the, the point is that this is all connected, and then I have a, a Greek pediatrician who is become like he's he's embarrassed at what's happening in the United States, and he's from Greece when it comes to infrastructure. Um, right. And so, to your point, then uh, the yellow vests they've spread to places like potentially Greece and outside of France, and you wanted to read something. Oh but. yeah. So, <clears throat> um, to that point, uh, David Graeber, who I take issue with uh, at least half the time, if not more, he he. <laughs> That's a lot, <laughs> uh, but I'm more not disagreeing. More to more to the more in line with his nest, like his anarchist prescriptions for like what the, sure, and he tends to anarchists have this way of cheating sometimes where they conflate different uh, movements uh, with maybe ideas that are kind of a stretch, um, but as uh, as kind of a left-wing anthropologist and somebody who's interested in talking about like researching the history of debt and bureaucracy and all that stuff. He's excellent um, in his uh, rigor. And so this is the majority of this is along those lines. And then part of it at the end, I take issue with and I'll explain why. Okay. So this is quote. uh, All right. So this is called the yellow vest show how much, the ground moves under our feet. If one feature of any true, re- truly revolutionary moment is the complete failure of conventional categories to describe what's happening around us, then that's a pretty good sign that we're living in revolutionary times. It strikes me that the profound confusion, even incredulity displayed by the French comment commentariat, and even more the world commentariat, in the face of each successive act, 
uh, spelled with an E, of the Gilles Jean drama now rapidly approaching its insurrectionary climax is a result of a near total inability to take account of the ways that power, labor, and the movements and and the movements ranged against power have changed over the last 50 years, and particularly since 2008. Intellectuals have, for the most part, done an extremely poor job understanding these changes. Let me begin by offering two suggestions as to the source of some of the confusion. One, in a financialized economy, only those closest to the means of money creation, essentially investors and the professional managerial classes, are in a position to employ the language of universalism. As a result, any political claims as based in particular needs and interests tended to be treated as manifestation of identity politics. And in the case of the social base of the GJ, the yellow vests, therefore cannot be imagined as anything but proto-fascist. And so he's saying cannot be imagined as anything proto-fascist except proto-fascist from the perspective of financial capital because they're not allowed to be universal speakers because they're not speaking from the perspective of what Badu calls a false universal of capital. That last part was me. Okay, two, this is Graeber again. Since 2011, there's been a worldwide transformation of common sense assumptions about what participating in a mass democratic movement should mean, at least among those most likely to do so. Older, quote, vertical end quote, or vanguardist models of organization have ra rapidly given way to an ethos of horizontality, one where democratic egalitarian practice and ideology are ultimately two aspects of the same thing. Inability to understand this gives the false impression movements, uh, gives the, he missed a word, I think, the false impression that movements like the yellow vests are anti-ideological, even nihilistic. Let me provide some background for these assertions. Since the U.S. jettisoning of the gold standard in 1971, we have seen a profound shift in the nature of capitalism. Most corporate profits are now no longer derived from producing or even marketing anything, but in the manipulation of credit, debt, and, and regulated rents. As government and financial bureaucracies become so intimately intertwined, it's increasingly difficult to tell one from the other. Wealth and power, particularly the power to create money, that is credit, also become effectively the same thing. This is what we were drawing attention to in Occupy Wall Street when we talked about the 1%, those with the ability to turn their wealth into political influence and political influence back into wealth. Despite this, politicians and media commentators systematically refuse to recognize the new realities. For instance, in public discourse, one must still speak of tax policy as if it is a, if as if it is primarily a way of government raising revenue to fund its operations, whereas in fact it is increasingly simp simply a way of one ensuring the means of credit creation can never be democratized, as only officially approved credit is acceptable in payment of taxes, and two redistributing economic power from one social sector to another. Since 2008, governments have been pumping new money into the system, which, owing to the notorious Cantillian effect, has tended to accrue overwhelmingly to those who already hold financial assets and their technocratic allies in the professional managerial classes. In France, of course, these are pre precisely the Macronists. 
members of these classes feel that they are the embodiments of any possible universal universalism, their conceptions of the universal being firmly rooted in the market, or increasingly that atrocious fusion of bureaucracy and market, which is the reigning ideology of what's called the, quote, political center, end quote. Working people in this new centrist reality are increasingly denied any possibility of universalism, since they literally cannot afford it. The ability to cut out of concern for the planet, or excuse me, the ability to act out of concern for the planet, for instance, rather than the exigent exigencies of sheer survival is now a direct side effect of forms of money creation and managerial distribution of rents. Anyone who is forced to think only of their own and their family's material needs is seen as asserting a particular identity. And while certain identities might be condescendingly indulged, that of the, quote, white working class, end quote, can only be a form of racism. One saw the same thing in the U.S., where liberal commentators managed to argue that if Appalachian coal miners voted for Bernie Sanders, a Jewish socialist, it must nonetheless somehow be an expression of racism. As with the strange insistence that the... Pronounce it again. Gilets jaunes <laughs> must be fascists, even if they haven't realized it. These are profoundly anti-democratic instincts. To understand the appeal of the movement, that is, of the sudden emergence and wildfire spread of real democratic, even insurrectionary politics, I think there are two largely unnoticed factors to be taken into consideration. The first is that financial capitalism involves a new alignment of class forces, above all ranging the, the techno-managerials more and more them employ oh it says more and more them employed in pure make work bullshit jobs as part of the neoliberal redistribution system against a working class that is now better seen as the quote caring classes end quote as those who nurture tend maintain sustain more than the old-fashioned, quote, producers, end quote. One paradoxical fact of the of digitization is that while it has made industrial production in infinitely more efficient it has rendered health, education, and other caring sector work less so. This, combined with the diversion of resources to the administrative classes under neoliberalism and attending cuts to the welfare state, has meant that practically everywhere it has been teachers, nurses, nursing home workers, paramedics, and other members of the caring classes that have been at the forefront of labor militancy. And that's just to interject, so end quote for a second. That's what we've been saying uh, for a while we've been tying it more directly to what the, you know the rise of uh neo working neo class based feminism okay my mic stand just collapsed can you help me out here um <clears throat> so we've been we've been we've been discussing um you know the 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 future being that teachers and nurses and <clears throat> People um, employed along these lines, primarily women, are the future of any sort of left politics in the U.S. All right, thanks. Um, okay. <clears throat> so Graber's giving a more uh, economic-based argument for why that is, namely that this has become the site of the working class in a period of sort of post-industrialization in the West. All right, so resuming the article, uh, quote, clashes between ambulance workers and police in Paris last week 
might be taken as a vivid symbol of the new array of forces. Again, public discourse is not caught up with the new realities, but over time, we will start having to ask ourselves entirely new questions. Not what forms of work can be automated, for instance, but which, but which we would actually want to be and which we would not. Okay, so what, what sorts of labor would we like to be doing versus not doing? That's a more important question um, and a new question, which I agree. I mean, in terms of like ruling discourse, that's not something that's discussed. So that's, again, an interjection. So resuming, uh, quote, how long we are willing to maintain a system where the more one's work immediately helps or benefits other human beings, the less you are likely to be paid for it. Second, in the events of second, the events of 2011, starting with the Arab Spring and passing through the squares movements to occupy appear to have marked a fundamental break in political common sense. One way you know that a moment of global revolution has indeed taken place is that the is that ideas considered madness a very short time before have suddenly become the ground assumptions of political life. The leaderless, horizontal, directly democratic structure of Occupy, for instance, was almost universally caricatured as idiotic, starry-eyed, and impractical, and as soon as the movement was suppressed, pronounced the reason for its, quote, failure, end quote. Certainly it seemed exotic, drawing heavily not only on the anarchist tradition, but on radical feminism and even certain forms of indigenous spirituality. But it has now become clear that it has become the default mode for democratic organizing everywhere, from Bosnia to Chile to Hong Kong to Kurdistan. If a mass democratic movement does emerge, this is the form it can now be expected to take. In France, Nuit Debout might have been the first, I probably butchered that, it's okay, might have been the first to embrace such horizontalist politics on a mass scale. But the fact that a movement originally of rural and small-town workers and the self-employed has spontaneously adopted a variation on this model shows just how much we are dealing with a new common sense about the very nature of democracy. About the only class of people who seem unable to grasp this reality are intellectuals. Just as during the Nuit Debout, many of the movement's self-appointed, quote, leadership, end quote, seem unable or unwilling to accept the idea that horizontal forms of organization were in fact a form of organization. They simply couldn't comprehend the difference between a rejection of top-down structures and total chaos. So now, intellectuals of the left and right insist that the gilets jaunes are, quote, anti-ideological, end quote, unable to understand that for horizontal social movements, the unity of theory and practice, which for past radical social movements tended to exist much more in theory than in practice, actually does exist in practice. These new movements do not need an intellectual vanguard to provide them with an ideology because they already have one. The rejection of intellectual vanguards and embrace of multiplicity and horizontal democracy itself. There's a role for intellectuals in these new movements, certainly, but it will have to involve a little less... <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, there's a role for intellectuals in these new movements, certainly, but it will have to involve a little less talking and a lot more listening. None of these new realities, whether of the relations of money and power or the new understandings of democracy likely to go away anytime soon, whatever happens in the next act of the drama. The ground has shifted under our feet and we might do well to think about where our allegiances actually lie. With the pallid universalism of financial power or those whose daily acts of, of care make society possible, end quote. Okay, so I think that <clears throat> you sort of get the point of, like, his 
differentiation between forms of universality and what what's seemingly what's viewed as possible with both within and then outside those uh, definitions of universality and then his reaction to that which is that somehow i i think what's what he's conflating and what doesn't really make sense is the idea that horizontality is a is newly accepted as like what the revolutionary left is about i mean mm-hmm. i think that that's the definition of the left since the dawn of neoliberalism since post 68 I was going to say yeah for a long time so i think he's uh he's cheating a little bit there but i that and so i wouldn't this whole like we need to do less talking and more listening i'm not sure when's the last time an intellectual vanguard had any clout anywhere in social movements i haven't really seen it i mean aside from the fact that like like the strongest example would be um, Zizek and Occupy Wall Street, but his message there was totally in solidarity and just trying to like warn people of avoiding yeah. uh, the pitfalls of getting boxed into fake activism when they're they were really breaking something important open, and that was clear at public debates when they he would be asked about Occupy. Um, where he would be thanking them for what they were doing and saying, you know, everything that you're doing is important. There's people who can't be here and it's important to know it, if anything, he was just adding to what they were already embodying as, you know, just sort of trying to clarify and frame what he saw them doing rather than telling them what to do. In fact, during, uh, the communism conf- idea of communism conference in New York, October, uh, 2011 during at the height of Occupy, his argument to the, to those intellectual vanguard types were that we have the 68ers have nothing to say today. Um, so I think Graber's full of shit and it, at worst, he's doing exactly what he's arguing against doing, um, by occupying this position of the kind of the omnipotent observer intellectual type. Um, but that's fine. I mean, that's, that's sort of a political problem. And I've heard other people having, slight political problems with Graeber along maybe not exactly similar lines, but uh, that all that, all that aside sort of, I think the main point uh, is true that within the realm of the ideology of financial capital and the reign of the quote universalism of markets, uh, that is the reason why the yellow jackets are, or yellow vests are being attacked as you know, whatever proto populist or proto right wing populists mm-hmm. um that we don't really know where their allegiance allegiance out whatever lie um i think that's that's a reactionary bullshit and and it seems pretty obvious and pretty transparent that when it's labor unions and students that's the legacy of the left that united force that we talked about the importance of that link is the the proof that it's not some sort of right-wing uprising. If it was, if it were, it would probably look more like Ukraine where you have just like openly, you know, insurrectionary violence, uh, to install right-wing, uh, governments funded by the West. Uh, Mm -hmm. that's not the case here at all. The, the argument is against the system as such, which Russia seems to be trying to push back against, by the way. Uh, the uh, yeah in Ukraine, I mean, right, but. which may lead us to World War Three, right? Um, just as quickly as all these things are exploding, but 
<clears throat> so the the important takeaway I think is that we we shouldn't both we should not get uh we should not drown ourselves in identity politics but we should also not drown ourselves in the neoliberal need to assert identity politics as the only viable possibility for popular mobilization because mm -hmm. obviously this is a more universal phenomenon and, and that's the, why as it's the dangerous. yellow vest suggests you mean yeah the yellow right. vests are the are a more universal um uprising insurrectionary mm -hmm. at least at the level of the flow of society the normal you know day-to-day -day, everyday life type of uh operations and <clears throat> so we shouldn't take the bait that we need to buy into the notion that we should reduce this to identity politics because it's obviously not true mm -hmm. no i agree um so I don't know much about Graeber. I just know he was a sort of a, a name you were supposed to read in graduate school or something. And I never did for a number of reasons. And I'm, I don't know, I guess I don't feel like I missed much to be quite <laughs> honest all these years later. But, but I, I am on the, for what it's worth, I'm on the mailing list for uh, the Fifth Estate Anarchist Magazine out of Michigan. They send me copies all the time, whether I want them or not. And so, oh, I, nice. so I read them now and then. Uh, and it's kind of, it's, it's good, you know, breakfast cereal <laughs> material. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, the reason I bring it up is it's interesting to read those sorts of articles that these typically North American anarchists are writing about this stuff. And it's, it does seem to me, even as I read it, even though it's relatively recent, uh, theory or, or reportage, it does seem kind of dated and it doesn't seem like it has anything to say to what's happening in France right now. Like it mm -hmm. doesn't even, doesn't even register. Right. Um, and I found that you know, obviously problematic, but also interesting too, in trying to figure out, well, the, the intellectuals, to your point, and or the actual on-the-ground anarchists, like, where are they at with all this stuff? And I know there's a lot of Antifa that, that's been um, with those with those anarchist types that have done some interesting, productive, good things in the last few years here with Trump and so on, but I don't, I still don't get the sense that they're really that uh, relevant, to be quite honest, in this country, and right. that's, that's disappointing, but also um, maybe that's just, you know, the result of their sort of, their biases or their... Um, I guess they're interested in themselves as anarchists, as in sort of uh, almost a lifestyle, if you will, right. in their posturing. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, the joke among comrades, you know, privately is, well, and not so privately sometimes, that basically, like, they're LARPing, live-action role-playing. It's just a... Sure. It's just this Cosplay. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> this left adventurism about <laughs> being right. a revolutionary. And uh, I think that you know, it's and this is just a contrast with Graeber to a degree. His his staging of like um, the the idea that decentralized organization has become this new standard for organization. Jody Dean was making the opposite argument regarding Occupy, which is that precisely at the height of horizontalism as a as an organizing principle, it found its limit. So, mm. uh, postmodern anarchist. Organ, uh, you know, pure horizontality and decentralized Delusian kind of nodes of deterritorialization, rhizomes and all that. Yeah, found their um, apogee at Occupy Wall Street, and then precisely noted their limit. And that was my, I, I mean, that was my experience of visiting the occupations and talking to people on the inside. Was like, in order to even do consensus based 
decision making, the immediate move was to get rid of most of what was const what constitutes consensus based discussions, such as direct response, such as you know, like the fact that you have to build this stack of people to speak, and then you have to have all these moderators and all this sort of thing. It's, it's on paper it's doable, but to me the it's it's contingent on like a fundamental background of agreement before a priori. And so without that, then you're constantly debating everything. And mm -hmm. my idea was like, okay, the general assembly should be a place where ideas are discussed. And then working groups is where you should make all the real like logistical decisions. Uh, Occupy didn't survive long enough to figure out a, a mode to do that in uh, that maybe could have worked. But regardless uh, in needing to act quickly, needing to be able to, be responsive to what's happening on the ground you either end up with if you have total decentralization you either end up with i think hyper militant hyper insurrectionary groups uh and then other groups providing care um but when that happens you have those ultra type groups we saw in egypt that very quickly that could turn into th that that's when things start to be able to be easily manipulated by outside actors um you know outside state actors intelligence agencies law enforcement military intelligence um it's just too it's permeability is precisely the the thing that allows it to be destroyed um and i don't th his reference to kurdistan is very very sketchy not because i'm i'm in solidarity with the kurdish struggle i'm saying that within kurdistan yes in rojava you have you have this uh, direct democratic pro-feminist mode of organizing but you also have i mean these are marxist leninists largely they're they're militants that are organized around like a cell-based infrastructure and it's 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 probably non-hierarchical to a degree, but any time you're engaged in, I mean, in Kurdistan, we're talking about armed struggle against ISIS. So it's a different, totally different, like platform. We're talking about a stable West where you can't have direct military force against the people without maybe an overthrow of the government in response. Um, so he's sort of cherry picking in a potentially dangerous way. Uh, <clears throat> even though the, he's right that the government does function in this decentralized federated way, but the they're facing a different set of battles and the fleeting reference to the Arab spring without discussing the aftermath is also extremely spurious at best. Um, so <clears throat> yeah, that I don't think, I mean, I, I feel my, my view is, and I've had this experience, I've, this experience has been shared by other people that I'm closely aligned with politically friends and comrades, uh, that there's a, I call it like sort of the dark night of the soul moment of passing through anarchism. I think everyone who's serious about anti-authoritarian and anti-capitalist politics has to at least address the question of what does libertarianism mean to the left and the, I'm in solidarity generally with anarchists and I probably agree with them on goals, you know, maybe 99 or a hundred percent of the time, but 
there becomes this this need to assert the identity, you know, individual lifestyleism and all that kind of thing you know, that I th- just think is bullshit. And in the face in in revolutionary t- or pre-revolutionary times, in times of cataclysmic change, in the end times, we don't have time for this bullshit. Like I don't, I don't trust my own you know, intuitions or feelings enough to assert those things as political, politically relevant, uh, data points in terms of what we're deciding to do, uh, or not do and where to intervene. Um, I'm more, you know, I said this before, I'd like fall under in that eight access political quiz, which seems accurate. It says libertarian communist. That's, mm-hmm. that's accurate. Um, as Chomsky's pointed out, the libertarian, legacy in the entire world except the u.s is the left legacy so mm-hmm. libertarian socialism is not a new concept it is not um it's not anything that it's only novel in the context of the u.s where you have to talk to people whose reference point for libertarianism is this sort of right-wing free market bullshit or um, the, the dude on parks and rec <laughs> run yeah runs swanson there you go yeah um and so <clears throat> But I also don't think that the, you know, pushing toward communism in any way contradicts an anarchist, a truly anarchist vision of, you know, how at a fu- at a future point we may be able to organize w- once we've beaten back the forces of false scarcity and um, taken some sort of power to be or having democratic mandates to enforce new forms of uh, the organization of the state later on that state becomes less and less important and it's not to say that the state will just wither and die i don't think i think that's naive but and historically has never been the case but if we don't pass through moments of um, seizing power, then nothing will change. And that seems to be the, the conceit of anarchism. That's why anarchism gets a rep of being full of middle-class white kids who are just, you know, play acting at revolution. And then they go back to their lives. And the old sort of joke was, why don't you see any 30 year olds, 30 year old anarchists? Well, because they get sick of it and it's, it sort of falls flat. And, I mean, I know people who are still anarchists who have a lot of these complaints about anarchists. People are more serious about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I just think, I think it's dead in the water. I don't think it's operative anymore. Um, That doesn't mean there isn't a work. And I've discussed, I've mentioned this before, the big problem with anarchism post-68 is just the abandonment of working class politics as explicitly. Anarchists were sort of, uh, it was the reason like the Nazis went after anarchists and communists were because <clears throat> anarchists and communists were labor leaders. They were the they were the serious people on the left and the principled people. And they were both engaged in labor and anti-war struggles. Well, in contemporary times, the working class politics side of anarchism is evaporated, at least in the U.S. Um, so the the move back to you know being more openly communist i think is just the move toward at least a vision that includes the working class as as agents of <clears throat> history at you know in the sort of in the, at that point at this point that's kind of a sentimental perspective but what i'm saying is reinscribing the working working class politics back into the left 
the intellectual left or just the left generally or the discourse about the left that is the that's the important move as well as the idea that maybe it doesn't matter so much what i'm doing individually or what my identity is if we have the same shared struggle and we identify within you know other people of course have their own individual struggles based on you know whether or not they're people of color whether or not they're women whether or not they're trans whether or not they're able-bodied etc 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 um but we can if we can find links between those that are become universal that was the, that was always the history of the labor movement was we're stronger together and they could prove it and they could prove it in the on the picket lines um and they could prove it with guns if necessary so <coughs> when when that's the case and we're facing you know extinction we have to we need a broader vision than anarchy i just don't think contemporary anarchism is up to the task either no i agree and i was going to say and i hadn't heard uh the critique of the the yellow vests as proto-fascist or something and that's interesting to me uh because just again i haven't paid as much attention as i probably should just watching what's unfolding there it didn't strike me as ideological enough or organized enough to be a fascist unless some commentators are worrying that it could be co-opted by fascists and i suppose that's possible but it, so that that critique i'm assuming is actually probably coming from the left sort of center left of this movement which is exactly which is terrifying and sort of problematic obviously um and it's it speaks to the i guess what that particular movement right now what it's doing to the world and how terrifying it is to left and right. Um, and that's why it should be obviously supported uh, in right. any way possible. Right. Yeah. That there should be an insurrection within the, within the left itself. Right. That's right. And so that's what I was going to say too, is maybe that's um, this yellow vest movement. I don't, again, know, know enough about it, but maybe that's what it's doing is reinserting that working class politics into the left. And that's why folks on the sort of moderate left are so terrified of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, for the same reason that the impatience with Occupy Wall Street was like, where are your demands? Tell exactly. us what you want. Exactly. <clears throat> and they wouldn't say a thing. Um, right. And which was the source of power. It, right. s- it scared the establishment mm-hmm. that they wouldn't frame it in terms of like a negotiation along uh, right. as capital inscribed it. Now, um, just to kind of expand on this a little bit uh, in a way that I think is more, you know, goes beyond graber uh you know so we've had some agreements and disagreements with him in this conversation um elaine badu wrote this paper uh about or this essay or whatever about uh the, the the problem of the problem of time and terror on the left so the the idea of the terror meaning like the obvious reference being the french revolution and the late, later the stalinist terror uh, two diff- vastly different uh, situations and vastly different moves. But Badu's argument, uh, and he gave this paper during Occupy Wall Street, well, it was given on his behalf, he was having health issues, but he said, it, it, like, the, the argument was something to the effect that, like, what the reason, one of the reasons uh, philosophically or structurally that Stalinism turned into mass slaughter was that the the Stalinist attempt was to, you know, industrialize, et cetera, along the lines of what capitalist production was demanding in terms of results for themselves. So what does capitalism demand of capitalists or of the economy and the society? 
Stalin was basically trying to impose that on the Soviet Union, even though it was a radically different situation. And so forced collectivization was a method, a brutal method to attempt to play along with capitalist temporality. So the concept of time uh, in revolutionary struggle becomes very, very significant because once temporality starts to get disrupted and this i saw happen in occupy and people would talk about it how they would when they were in you know either at the parks or the different occupations um a different sort of temporality seemed to be operative that Mm -hmm. there was and my observation going in was maybe maybe we don't get new ideas about how to structure society until we've established the space where the rules don't apply, the capitalist rules don't apply at least temporarily. I mean, hopefully longer, but so be it. Um, and this is interestingly a post occupy. My experience with a lot of the left didn't want to talk about it anymore. It was almost an embarrassment. They saw it as a failure. And I think that's total bullshit. And that's a total, that's being extorted by capital to agree that it didn't, you know, mm-hmm. like that it's almost like analyzing it from the perspective of input output. Um, <clears throat> like as though it's a commodity, as though it's something that's either, you know, you can either produce it a profit or not in a certain, you know, just reflexively instantaneous. And Buddy's argument was like, don't buy into this. Don't get blackmailed into thinking you have to play by their rules because that's not what this is about. And the, one of the examples he gave was in China. <clears throat> so it took Mao decades to take power. And one of the reasons for that is just how China is um, distributed. You know, as a country, there would be these pockets of communist, you know, towns or whatever. And they the communists knew that they couldn't win in open warfare against the state, against the emperor or whatever. Um, and so they would, they would spend decades consolidating power and growing slowly. And just knowing that when the moment was right to strike, they would, uh, they would rise up, you know, when, and if that came in their lifetimes. And so I think that's a very important lesson for a left finding itself in pre proto or, you know, early revolutionary times as we seem to be finding ourselves is to call Occupy a failure is to somehow ignore the fact that in 2012, the next year, half a millennial is identified as socialist, just seemingly out of the blue. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't out of the blue. It was because we changed reality. Now, Graeber mentioned that sort of like these ideas. He was talking about horizontality, but I think the ideas that emerged were the ideas of open class war as a, political force in American politics that was not there before that they started speaking our language, including the Republicans. That was the victory ideologically, um, at least for a time. And that's persisted. And then you see, I mean, the rise of Bernie Sanders. So you have occupy the Arab spring, the, the European squares movement spreading globally in 2011, five to six years later, you have Jeremy Corbyn almost winning an election in, well, Sanders, would have won the presidency had the primary not been stolen from him. We've discussed that at length. So he would have had a what would be considered a radical leftist in the American political mainstream winning the presidency. Jeremy Corbyn, who even at the beginning of the, um, the campaign season when they had a snap election, this was a snap election called to try and consolidate Tory power, but it radically backfired. No one, in, almost no one, including... 
the radical left in the UK thought Corbyn had any chance of winning. Up until election day, it was only zealots like me and some comrades who were like, you have to act like he's going to win regardless of what the fuck you think because you don't know. And that's all the more reason to fight. And then he did. He functionally won. He didn't. He became within a within a hair's breadth of taking power. And then um, in France, Melanchon, who is even a more like militant leftist, was within a, a couple points of having been one of the two runoff candidates. Mm -hmm. And had he been a runoff candidate against Macron, who knows? Le Pen, he definitely would have won. Mm -hmm. So three major Western powers were almost... Uh, the governments are almost taken over by radical leftists within their contexts. Right. Um, and yet I'm supposed to assume that occupies a failure according to left analyses that are based on blackmail. So I think that's bullshit. And I think we should take more seriously the notion of repetition as a revolutionary force. And a lot of contemporary, you know, continental or whatever philosophy, left-wing philosophy is, taken with that question of repetition as a philosophical trope but in terms of temporality um france you know okay so what if there's a danger of a right-wing takeover that danger is always there with any sort of historical opening and so what if it fail quote unquote fizzles out or fails i think the problem with that reasoning is that what people forget is that a year or two ago France was close to this level of uprising for the same reasons. And they're just repeating the gesture, except it's stronger now. And they have more of a mandate and people are more pissed off because Macron has fucked them so bad in the interim. Uh, <clears throat> and so there's no telling how if, the, if Extinction Rebellion can grow from literally zero to two million in two months, then we can build anything that we want. If a progressive international that seemed that nobody would have even been talking about except on the fringes of the radical left two years ago is now mainstream idea, basically, um, <clears throat> with popular public figures supporting it and spearheading it uh, with Congress people that who are rejecting the secrecy around how government works um, with Medicare for All and all these you know left-wing social policies having massive popular support in the u.s we we need to we should be focused not so much on producing leftist outcomes along the lines of what capitalism demands of us in a market system and much more concerned with proceeding to repeat the gesture of the revolutionary struggle in whatever form we find it available as many times as it takes. And then all of a sudden we might find ourselves in power. We might find ourselves in a changed world. And unless we start to think along those lines, we will be trapped playing the game of, who gets what for what and this opportunism of needing to, if we don't succeed instantly, then it was a failure and we go into hiding. Fuck that. Fuck them. Fuck that argumentation. Fuck the intelligentsia who would claim that that's, that's the rubric for success <clears throat> because the problems don't go away. And so long as the problems don't go away and we stay principled and committed to an ideal of a vision of the future, then we can't truly be defeated in the long term. And time is running out in terms of like what the stakes are. So it's all the more reason to persist 
in spite of all odds, because hope has nothing to do with what's possible. Hope has to do with asserting a new reality in the face of impossibility. That's the task of the left. It always has been. And so long as it continues, it always will be. I don't have a lot to add to that other than one example, I suppose, um, to sort of build build upon that argument. You and I both have a mutual friend who's in the alternative uh, media, essentially, and has, you know, done a lot of, spent a lot of time with anarchists in anarchist circles and at Occupy as well, and spent a lot of time at Standing Rock. And so, I mean, two points. So one, I, this person was there for a long time. I was there just for a day. Um, but I mean, even in that day, I felt like, to your point, like time was different there. It was just a different experience and with seeing what everyone was doing and how they interacted with each other. And so on, it was fascinating. But um and I I spoke with this person at that event as well, and we talked a lot about a lot of interesting things. But after the fact, this is maybe a year later, um, well, I should back up. So the context was uh, early December of 2016, the Standing Rock protests had sort of reached their pinnacle. And then, a, you know, a week after I was there, Obama announced we're pulling out a keystone. We're done. Right. It's it's over. And, the, you know, folks in Standing Rock said, we won. This is great. Uh, we did it. But then. As things um, unfolded, it became clear they didn't exactly, quote, win, um, and certainly with Trump, um, a lot of their victories had been rolled back in a variety of ways. But, And so this person that I'm mentioning, we talked a year later, and he was so down on that whole thing, saying that like, that was a total failure. Like, as, in spite of everything they tried to accomplish or did accomplish, it was a failure. And I was kind of shocked by that reasoning. I felt like, but, you know, here we are watching what's happening all over in Canada, in other parts of the United States, in other parts, uh, indigenous uprisings in other parts of the world. Like, they took inspiration from that. They're doing stuff mm-hmm. and making a difference. It's happening in Minnesota right now with this Line 3 um, stuff as well, another sort of what's happening on the legal scene kids, you know, taking mm-hmm. governments to court for the future because of um, climate change and so on. And then up to the point now, the potential Green New Deal, right? I feel like all of that stuff in some ways is an, is a, is the result of what happened at Standing Rock. And so that's right. a, it's a victory in a way. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed when I hear people, they're so down on themselves on the left for their failures, right? Right. When I think this stuff is productive, whether you know it or not. Right. I mean, I have empathy with people who exper- who are actually there doing it, right. experiencing it that way, because they're taking the brunt of it. Exactly. Physically, psychologically, emotionally. Uh, and that's they're always paying the price for the victories that follow. And the, the, wi- the, you know, the widening of the scope, the aperture of who can see this as a problem and who sees themselves as able to act. Right. Um, but I agree that like, I mean, my, my criticism is mainly like mainly the people who are, I think the person you're referring to, uh, I can't speak on anyone's behalf, but my, my sense would be like, uh, if it were me, maybe I would be frustrated at outcomes given how much blood, sweat and tears have put into it. Um, and, but I, uh, and which is all, which is just to add that I think it's important to acknowledge the those sacrifices and and to try and link that back to maybe what you're suggesting that, um, therefore, we see what the the scope of the possible is widened mm-hmm. as a result of those sacrifices, mm-hmm. even though the the immediate battles may feel like losses or maybe are losses in in practical terms. Um, but what other, what, what else is there? You know, what choice do we have? 
when we're starting out, we're trying to create a new reality. It's not going to be pretty and it's not going to be simple. It's going to be messy and mm -hmm. it's going to be wrought with problems and at least temporary setbacks or losses. I mean, this was Lenin's uh, point about like what <clears throat> it, the um, not so much the failure of revolutionary struggle, but when you when you pursue a certain path and that doesn't work out. What happens, it's like ascending a mountain and you get to a certain summit you thought was the top or you thought would have been the top and then it wasn't. And so you had to come back all the way down. So people peering out from below are going to laugh and say, oh, look, now I have to climb down the whole mountain. But Lenin's point is that we should then begin at the beginning again and take a different trajectory that we couldn't have known was the right trajectory prior to having, you know, uh, chosen a path that didn't work out. Uh and that's where that's where it is a question of faith. Um, we, I, you know, I've had conversations with people on the left, and it's like we're not getting anything out. I mean, this is not paying off in terms of personal, you know, opportunistic. Like we're not in this for the victories because we're used to losing over mm -hmm. and over again. And so the it becomes a faith in the sense of a decision. I believe in this in spite of all all odds because it, you know, it, this has to be the future or, you know, like Jesus says, see in communism or see in hell. Um, sort of like being a Minnesota Vikings fan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the Vikings, there's no hope of victory ever, <laughs> but we persist, we carry on. That's right. And Jesus, you know, reference point, Samuel Beckett, you know, try again, fail again, fail better. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> if that's what it takes. I think we're at the point now we're at a, we're at a crossover point where the left will start taking power one way or another, um, just by nature of like the, the, the way the wind is blowing to some degree, mm -hmm. uh, as well as, uh, you know, as a, th the yield from all this, these, you know, decade of revolutionary struggle in, in times of hopelessness and times of seemingly it, the left itself seeming fairly lost. Um, but you know, again, what choice do we have? Just like Vikings fans, what can, what else can we do? It's six and six and one. <laughs> we tied. I, I was at the gym watching the game because uh, the gym's pretty cool. It has like TVs and stuff. And <laughs> I was <laughs> when they blocked that fucking field goal. So for those <laughs> the uninitiated, uh, the Vikings played the Seahawks on Monday and. The Vikings kept going for fourth downs, trying to score touchdowns, and the game was very low scoring. And then they finally decided to kick a field goal, and the Seahawks linebacker jumped over the center illegally, but they didn't call it. it blocked the field goal, mm -hmm. at which point I fell to my knees. It was just like, God damn it! And this girl <laughs> was like watching this play out, and she's like, she's like, this is an abusive relationship. You need to get out. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I agreed with her. 100%. Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> So, um, the level we, we should, we should be, the left should be like Vikings fans and mm -hmm. assert a level of faith that goes beyond all, all possible opportunistic reasoning. Absolutely. Yeah. I've been moving calm, don't start no trouble with me. Trying to keep it peaceful is a struggle for me. Don't pull up at 6 a.m. to cuddle with me. You know how I like it when you loving on me. I don't want to 
lot for them to miss me Yes, I see the things that they wishing on me Hope I got some brothers that outlive me They gon' tell the story, shit was different with me God's plan, God's plan I hold back, sometimes I won't, yeah. I feel good, sometimes I don't, like, yeah. I finesse down Western Road, hey, next Might go down to G-O-D, yeah, wait I go hard on Southside G, yeah, wait I make sure that Northside E And still Bad things It's a lot of bad things That they wish and wish and wish and wish and they wish on me Bad things It's a lot of bad things That they wish and wish and wish and wish and they wish on me Yeah Hey, hey. She say, do you love me? I tell her only partly. I only love my bed and my mom. I'm sorry. 50 dub, I even got it tatted on me. 81, they'll bring the crashers to the party. And you know me. Turn the O2 into the O3, dog. Without 40 Ollie, there be no me. Imagine if I never met the broskis. God's plan. God's plan. I can't do this on my own, hey, no, hey. Someone watching this shit close, yeah, close. I've been me since Scarlet Road, hey, bro, hey. Might go down as G-O-D, yeah, wait. I go hard on Southside G, hey, wait. I make sure that Northside E, yeah. And still. Bad things, it's a lot of bad things that they wishing and wishing and wishing and wishing, they wishing on me. Yeah. Yeah. Bad things. It's a lot of bad things that they wish and 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 they wish